This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. We are very excited to partner with the Southern Utah Science Cafe out of Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Today's show is from the Science Cafe and is a discussion about the geology of Red Cliffs Desert Reserve. This reserve is in Southwest Utah and is also a critical habitat for the desert tortoise. Welcome to the Southern Utah Science Cafe podcast. The red color of the cliffs is mostly due to the fact that the little quartz grains that make up the rock are each coated with a little tiny coating of a mineral called hematite, which is basically the naturally occurring form of rust, which is why they have that rusty color. There's just enough of a coating on each one of those grains to make the rock look very, very red. I'm Dr. Jerry Harris. I'm the director of paleontology and a professor of geology here at Dixie State University. Most of the of the red cliffs in the Red Cliffs Preserve um, are part of a rock unit, a set of layers called the Navajo sandstone. The general estimate we give for them is they're about 180, 185 million years old. They represent a time in Earth history when there was a vast desert, specifically a portion of a desert called an erg, which is basically just a field of sand dunes as far as the eye can see. And this erg stretched all the way from uh, central Arizona and New Mexico all the way up into Idaho, and it spanned from western Colorado into southeastern California. Uh, it was the biggest erg we know of in all of Earth history. There are dynamic sandy sand dunes at Snow Canyon and Coral Pink State Parks and all throughout the reserve. I asked Dr. Harris how they go from sand to sandstone and back again. Basically, dunes migrate, and they climb up over on top of one another. So older dunes get buried underneath younger dunes. And once they're underground, the the individual little quartz grains are being compacted together. And then as groundwater at a later point in time flows through the little pore spaces in between all of the individual little quartz grains, uh, deposits minerals, including things that will then cement each of those grains together. The Navajo sandstone is not not the most tightly cemented sandstone I've ever seen. Um, uh, in the sense that it weathers fairly easily uh, and the grains come apart because there's not a ton of cement in those little pore spaces holding the grains together. Um, but uh, that's, that's what ultimately will fossilize the dunes. The, the modern dunes that are in Snow Canyon State Park and at Coral Pink Sand Dunes and in a few other areas around uh, uh, Washington County uh, are basically from the Navajo sandstone re-eroding, uh, re-weathering, and you know, just taking the sand grains that were part of those sand dunes and getting turned into modern sand dunes, which if they ended up getting buried, could eventually form a new set of sand dune-based rocks at some point in the future. So when those dunes were forming, the world was in a vastly different shape. And so were the things living on it. Well, 180, 185 million years ago was just after Pangaea started breaking apart. So North America and uh, uh, North America and Europe were basically one landmass that was starting to move a little bit further northward. Uh, South America, Africa, Australia, Antarctica, India, we're all moving farther south, but the Atlantic Ocean, the northern portion of the Atlantic Ocean that separated them, uh, it was only a few tens of millions of years old at this point, so it wasn't very wide, not, not nearly as wide as it is today. So the continents were still, um, they were just uh, done being connected to one another. Life at this point in time, um, uh, especially in this corner of North America, is not particularly well known because the Navajo sandstone rarely preserves fossils. So we don't have a, a terrific handle on it. Um, we know most of the life forms that were living in and around this ancient erg uh, were uh, pr- or the fossils we find of them are mostly footprints. So uh, we have dinosaur footprints, mostly from meat-eating dinosaurs, but there were some larger and smaller plant-eating dinosaurs as well. 
uh, from a, a portion of the Navajo sandstone that's a little bit farther to the east of us uh, in a little uh, lake deposit that was in between some of the dunes. There's actually been some fossil crocodile bones have been found. So we know that there were uh, there was some aquatic life in some of these interdune lakes that were probably uh, uh, not very long-lived as the dunes migrated around. Um, but uh, we don't know much about, like, plant life. Uh, there are some fossils made by some invertebrates, some uh, uh, insects and arachnids and things like that. Trace fossils have been found. Um, but, yeah, we don't have a, a spectacular picture on exactly which animals were around making these, the, uh, these trace fossils that we see, uh, other than the extremely rare bones. The red rocks aren't the only geological feature to note in this desert. The lava flows that you see all over the Red Cliffs Preserve um, are actually of different ages, um, uh, many of which came from little cinder cone volcanoes that actually no longer exist or, or barely exist up in the, in the northern parts of the preserve today, uh, mostly because they've been weathered away. The lava flows basically all throughout this corner of Washington County range from an age of about 2.1 million years old for the oldest ones, uh, and the youngest ones are the Santa Clara volcanoes, which are up at the north end of Snow Canyon, and those date to about 32,000, 32,500 years old or so. But they're all producing the same kind of rock. They're all producing basalt, which is a, a, the same kind of rock that the Hawaiian Islands are made out of. It's the dark black uh, igneous rock that, uh, that's typical of lava flows. So this area has been uh, volcanically active for at least a couple of million years. And the reason it's volcanically active is because we are sitting at the very edge of the Basin and Range province of North America, which is a whole section of the western part of North America that is slowly being pulled apart. Uh, and as it's being pulled apart, the crust uh, is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So it's very much like pulling silly putty apart really slowly. The silly putty gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And once the crust gets very thin, it reduces the amount of pressure sitting on the solid part of the mantle underneath uh, underneath the crust. And that allows some of that part to melt. And that generates magmas, which then shoot up as little pockets and create these little cinder cone volcanoes around our area. None are active right now, but there's still a lot of potential for a new one to pop up anywhere. And somehow, lava flows that you would think would be flowing down are way up on top of those sandstone ridges. The basalt that you see uh, frequently in the area is lining the tops of ridges, uh, mostly. And if you were to go uh, look at those from the air, uh, you would see that those ridges are, are sort of sinuous in shape. Those are actually ancient stream channels. Uh, so when the lava was flowing, that was the lowest point at ground level. So the ground level that's around them currently is much lower than it was when the lava was actually flowing. And that's because, uh, you know, this area has been undergoing weathering and erosion over the last couple of million years. Uh, but when the volcanoes were actively producing lava flows, the lava would do exactly what you expect a liquid to do and flow downhill into the lowest possible places. That would include stream channels and, and arroyos, uh, you know, dry stream channels. Uh, and then it solidifies once it's flowing through those. The basalt rock that forms from those lava flows is a much tougher, much more durable rock than the sedimentary sandstones and things that are around them. The, the sandstones from the Navajo sandstone and some of the other rocks erode much more quickly. So uh, as those get eaten down farther and farther and farther, the rock that's immediately underneath the basalt flows, underneath the lava flows, is protected by that little cap of really durable rock. So that doesn't weather down nearly as much, and that leaves the lava flows eventually sticking up as these ridges filling in these ancient stream channels. And that's a phenomenon known as inverted topography uh, because the what used to be the lowest possible places are now the highest places in that general vicinity. So now we have a little geological background of the Red Cliffs Reserve and the surrounding areas. But those red rocks and those lava flows, they're not the reason that this is a protected area. It's all because of the Mojave Desert tortoise, Gopharis agassizii. 
this is an endangered species that is found in other states, but it's not found in any other part of Utah, just where the Mojave Desert touches. People have been picking up tortoises for years, which you should not do. We'll talk about that later. But this practice has led to the belief that the tortoises aren't native here, which they are. Some folks even believe that these tortoises were brought in by radical environmentalists to keep people from building roads and other developments. I don't speak for the Shivwitz Band of Paiute, who have lived here a thousand years, but I will say that they call this area Pikaya Tuvip, which means tortoise land. There are petroglyphs of tortoises around here. So the reserve is here to protect the tortoise. What could threaten them? I talked with Laura Snow, outreach coordinator for the Washington County Habitat Conservation Plan. So kind of like how I explain it to elementary school kids, I feel like honestly is one of the best ways to explain it to everybody, where um, over the last 150 years, as more and more and more people have been moving into this Mojave Desert ecosystem, we've been building the things that humans, quote unquote, need to live. Um, we've been building houses and we've been building roads and we've been building stores and schools and just a really significant amount of infrastructure. And obviously that amount increases every year. And we've been building all of that infrastructure right on top of all of the things that the tortoises need to survive. And so over the last 150 years, as you've gotten more and more and more people, you get less and less and less tortoises. And all of that development had led to such significant habitat loss for the tortoises that by the late 1980s, their populations had dropped so significantly that they were, um, cons- they were listed federally um, as a threatened species on the um, endangered species list. So what does a tortoise need? You know, the things that tortoises need to live, they need native grass, they need annuals, they need cactus fruit, they need wildflowers, they need the little water source, they need ample open space. <laughs> really, that's, that's it. They need room to roam. And as we have had, you know, cattle grazing move into this area, I feel like that that was really the first point at which the habitat began to be degraded. So in the early 1990s here in Washington County, we did, you know, have such a significant amount of development happening. And when the tortoises were federally listed as a threatened species, we knew that we needed to take action to protect the tortoises. And so the 62,000 acres of the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve was set aside um, for the preservation of the desert tortoise habitat, which then opened up the rest of the county to development. What happens if tortoises find themselves in unprotected places? And so for the last 26 years, anytime you want to build anything in desert tortoise habitat, before that development can happen, um, we get to go out and we survey the land that is going to be developed. Um, Any tortoises that we find, we remove them from those development areas. We make sure that they are healthy. And then we're actually able to set them free out into the protected habitat of the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve. And this plan seems to be working. Over the last 26 years, with that protected habitat, our population of desert tortoises here in Washington County is actually one of the most healthy and functional populations of tortoises throughout the entire Mojave Desert, which extends, you know, we're just a teeny tiny portion of the Mojave Desert here in St. George. We're the very, very northeast corner. And there's a very small section of it down into Arizona 
And then it stretches over into Nevada and um, all the way down into California as well. So throughout that huge range, our tortoise population that we have here is actually doing really well. You know, our tortoises have good food sources. Our tortoises, as long as we get, you know, a few good rainstorms a year, our tortoises have good water sources. So our tortoises here, because they have this protected habitat, they're actually doing really well for a species that, like on the whole, is struggling pretty significantly. But tortoises still have the odds stacked against them. Wildfires, invasive plants, dogs, and many other factors make it harder for tortoises to survive. Ravens can be a particular problem. At some point in time, a hungry raven went down and ate a tortoise and was like, oh my god, this is delicious. And ravens, being in the corvid family and being probably the most intelligent species of bird, they are social and they communicate with each other. And the raven that went and ate the tortoise went and told his friends he was like oh my gosh you guys have to try this so it's like when you go to an amazing restaurant and then you tell all of your friends how amazing that restaurant was ravens have done that with tortoises <laughs> and they have taught all their friends how to eat tortoises and now they teach their offspring how to eat tortoises and it has become a pretty significant problem because they are figuring out new novel ways to eat tortoises too we've seen them um, peck through their shells. We've also seen them pick them up um, like gulls do with like shellfish where they pick them up and they fly them way up into the air and then they drop them out of the air and just let them plummet to the ground. And Now ravens don't seem to migrate the way they used to, likely because of human subsidies like landfills and reservoirs, but they're still protected under the Migratory Bird Act of 1918. That means they can be difficult to control and it's important to see how they behave around tortoises. Raven predation is not as significant a problem here in southern Utah as it is in other places throughout the desert tortoises range. But we're really trying to be proactive here so that it doesn't become as significant a problem as it, as it has become, um, especially over in California. And we've been able to do a few interesting projects um, working with Southern Utah University where we got um, little 3D printed baby tortoises that look exactly like a real tortoise. And um, we anchored them to the ground and then set game cams up so that we can monitor places um, where there might be like higher levels of raven predation. I also ask why we're not supposed to touch the tortoises. You know, if you're out on a hike and you see a tortoise and that tortoise is just living their best life, yeah, there's no reason to touch that tortoise. So tortoises can actually go about a year without taking in any additional water because they're able to store the water that they need inside their bladder. And so a tortoise that is frightened and voids its bladder then runs the risk of not being able to ingest more water in a timely fashion and so then the tortoise um, is in danger of becoming dehydrated but we've done such a good job telling people to never touch the tortoises that they are now we're seeing these instances where a tortoise is in trouble and could use a hand and people are so worried about getting in trouble for touching a tortoise that they're leaving a tortoise in danger vehicular onslaught kills a lot of these animals so if you see one in the road, you can help. 
you as a citizen can 100% help a tortoise cross the road without ever getting into any kind of trouble at all. So um, say there's a tortoise in the road. What you're going to do is you're going to make sure that you are not putting yourself in danger and you can go over to the tortoise and, you know, introduce yourself, wave to the tortoise. Um, and then you can pick up the tortoise and just keep it close to the ground. Keep it, you know, all four legs down. Move it slowly in the direction that it was going as long as the direction that it was going was back toward the reserve. Um, and then if there is tortoise fencing on the other side of the road, pick it up, put it over the tortoise fencing, and then just send it on its way. Um, if you encounter a tortoise in your neighborhood, you can put the tortoise in a box. You can hold on to it. Um, you can call us at the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve. You can actually call Animal Control. Animal Control is a really good partner for us in removing tortoises from residential areas. And then the Division of Wildlife also has a 24-7 um, urban wildlife officer who can come and move tortoises out of residential areas as well. So, you know, if the tortoise is just out in the desert and he's totally fine and you're just observing them, you know, don't touch them. But if a tortoise needs help, you can absolutely always help a tortoise in trouble and you'll never get in tr you will never get in trouble for helping a tortoise in trouble. That's all for part one of our exploration through the Red Cliffs Reserve. Stay tuned for part two, where we learn more about the history and politics of the reserve and get a little closer to the tortoises themselves. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.